0: It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just won't talk this episode. I guess no. Um...
1: <laughs> Hello, welcome to Ten Cent Takes. The podcast where we strut through sleazy streets, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the nun of nonsense, Jessica Frazier.
0: Not only am I not non-nonsensical, I'm extra nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: How are
1: you doing?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm good. It's been so long since I saw you two hours ago at Lumicon.
0: Right. Yes, I know. Yay, Lumicon!
1: <laughs> for those of you not aware, Lumicon is a local show in Petaluma every year. It's designed for for kids and families. It's great. A number of our friends are there every year, so we were able to hang out. And yeah,
0: yeah. And I'm still dressed in my closet cosplay that I was doing of Shaggy Rogers from Scooby Doo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was great. If you are new to the show, the purpose of our podcast is to look at comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And as always, if you are enjoying the show and want to help us grow, it's a huge help if you can rate or review us on Apple Podcasts, because that always helps with discoverability. Today, we're getting into the Valentine's Day spirit and talking about the erotic, in quotes, adventure comic, Saxon Violins. And for reasons that will become apparent throughout the episode, we've invited Casey Fatchett from the Nerdy Photographer podcast onto the show. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for being here, man. It's great to see you again.
3: No problem. This was this is a real trip. Yeah. Uh, a lot of fun to, to read over this one.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, we were trying to find an excuse to bring you on for something photography related that wasn't Spider-Man or Jimmy Olsen, and then I found this and I was like, perfect.
3: <laughs> Excellent choice. Yeah. Hey. It brought back a lot of memories for me, honestly, in in a lot of ways we'll get into
1: later. But yeah,
3: it was really interesting.
1: Awesome. Would you mind introducing yourself to to our listeners? Sure.
3: My name is Casey Fatchett. I am a photographer for 22 years professionally in uh, New York City, northern New Jersey area. I also host the Nerdy Photographer podcast, which you can find on any podcast platform. And uh, yeah, we discuss photography related topics as well as business stuff and nerdy Comic book, science fiction stuff as well.
1: Yeah, which we were on last year for, and we talked about the X-Men. It was great. Yeah, my,
3: it, my uh, bizarre obsession with the X-Men, which has been going on for a long time.
0: It's a good obsession to have, though. I'm not going to lie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: I actually had some X-Men-related thoughts that go with this whole oh, thing. Oh,
0: I'm uh, excited. Oof, love it.
1: All right. Before we get started talking about Saxon violins, though... What is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? And Casey, you are the guest, so you get to go first.
3: Uh, I'm going to go with Poker Face over on Peacock. Uh, I just watched it last night. It's a new Ryan Johnson joint with uh, Natasha Leon and it's, it's really amazing. A lot of fun. love Natasha. She's great. And the delivery and everything is very, very funny, but the writing is really good. The cast are incredible. Like The first episode, I felt like it was a movie. Like it just went on like it was. the Episodes are like an hour long, and they're really shot well.
1: I mean, it's Ryan Johnson, of course they're going to be shot well.
3: Yeah, and like Adrian Brody was in the first episode, and mm. Ben Bratt and like a bunch of other people. I was just like, and then each episode there's like more, the cast you know, mm. keeps grow, like more and more people, and I was just like, it's really great. It was a lot of fun. I, I was just, I was enthralled. I had like blazed through the
1: first four episodes that were up on Friday. Just awesome. Just, I'm, I've seen ads for that. It looks great. A lot of fun.
0: Yeah.
1: All right, Jessica, what about you?
0: Well, I have similarly been watching shows. I've been a little bit more low energy again this week. So I watched the first season of The Devil in Ohio. Mm. That's on Netflix. And it's got Emily Deschanel, which I love her and yeah it's really interesting it's about this girl who ends up like escaping from a cult and the therapist who like kind of takes her in to kind of help her through it and the therapist also has some stuff going on but then like the cult's still trying to get this girl back Mm. and it's like a like violent satanic kind of situation and it's yeah so it's a very interesting series and it definitely twists and turns and it's one of those who's the bad guy kind of <laughs> series where you're kind of guessing towards like throughout the series who the bad guy is really out of all of this. Nice. Yeah.
3: I saw a little bit of it. I didn't watch like the whole thing, but I had mm-hmm. uh, gotten into like the first couple episodes. Yeah, it's very it was very twisty
0: very twisty yeah i like the characters and like they kind of build you up sometimes to to think that something's gonna happen and then you're like oh that didn't quite happen but like you know what i mean so it's it's really interesting the way they did it they kind of gave me like like that good kind of anxiety where you're just like oh my gosh is this thing gonna happen like is this gonna happen (laughs) so Mm. yeah so what about you mike
1: I just checked out the first volume of Grim from Boom. It's written by Stephanie Phillips, illustrated by Flaviano, who I guess was the artist for Hellions, colored by Rico Renzi, and lettered by Tom Napolitano. And the story follows Jessica Harrow, who is a Grim Reaper, but she's one of many. And it's like there's this whole like bureaucracy of the afterlife and moving souls on. And so the story opens with her collecting a soul of a guy named Brian who died in a car crash. She takes him to the afterlife and it's revealed as they're having a conversation that she doesn't know how she died. Brian ends up stealing her scythe and escaping back to Earth. She has to chase him down only to suddenly be seen by the living, which is a big deal. And that's where things really kick off. I don't want to spoil things too much more from there. But it's a really cool story. It's one with really incredible world building by Phillips. Flaviona's art is just, it's stunning and it's cool. And like, I honestly might have to add the series to my pull list. It's just really unique. And the first volume just came out. So, you know, if you're listening to this, check it out.
0: Hmm. Sounds interesting. Very cool. All
1: right. Who's ready to talk about sax and violins?
3: I am. And I got to say this before we get started, I felt I was really upset with myself that it took me. I can't remember how long I could look back through our messages on Twitter to figure out that it was Bio because he's a photographer. And I was just like, oh, it's just their way of saying sex is violence. And I was just like, wait, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so okay. dumb. I love it. I it love was... it so much. <laughs> I was really mad at myself for not picking up on that one. Uh, yeah.
0: I, you know. They picked up their biggest shoehorn. <laughs> just really went for it.
1: <laughs> you are just gonna shove that right. Yeah, I was with a family friend when I bought an issue of this, and I was like twelve. And she was like, "I was like, it's Saxon and violins," and she's like, "Sex and violence," and I'm like, "No, it's Saxon and violins." And I was she like, really "Oh wait, I get it now." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so dumb. <laughs> Okay. So before we start focusing on Saxon violence itself, we need to note that this is technically a Marvel book that was published under the Epic imprint. And Jessica, we have talked about Epic comics with Dan Chichester since the Hellraiser books that he worked on were published by that line. Can you briefly summarize the focus of comics that were published under the Epic label?
0: Yeah. So since the Epic was a spinoff of Marvel, it published more like creator owned work that wasn't Mm -hmm. connected to the Marvel overall superhero universe. And it also, to the benefit, and this was the big benefit, did not have the restrictions of the Comics Code Authority. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And we'll return to the whole creator rights and all that stuff that, you know, that came along with this later on. Now, Saxon Violins itself came out under the Heavy Hitters line, which was this like sub imprint for Epic. You know, by the early 90s, the epic label had sort of lost its luster, but Marvel was getting really desperate to keep readers, you know, coming back to their books after the abrupt departure of top artists who went on to found Image Comics. So Epic Comics executive editor Carl Potts put together the Heavy Hitters brand for a new round of creator-owned titles from a pretty solid lineup of folks that were, you know, pretty big in the industry already. And there are actually a couple of other series that I think we might want to take a look at in future episodes based on what I came across while researching this series. And that's how we wound up with this book, which was the brainchild of writer Peter David and artist George Perez. And by this point, David had been working at Marvel for several years with runs Wolverine, X-Factor, and a couple of new universe books which we are talking about next episode with Fabian Nisiesa. But he was particularly known for The Incredible Hulk, where he had a 12-year run that would actually become one of the most popular eras for the comic. And he also co-created Spider-Man 2099 just one year earlier. And George Perez, meanwhile, was already 20 years into his career as an artist, and he'd earned universal acclaim for his work, especially with the stints at DC Comics, where he'd penciled The New Teen Titans, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and Wonder Woman. And he'd also recently penciled the first four issues of Marvel's Smash Hit Infinity Gauntlet main series. And he and David had worked together in 1992 on The Incredible Hulk Future Imperfect, which is still considered one of the best Hulk stories ever created. And that brings us to Saxon Violins, <laughs> which is a four issue miniseries from 1993. It was written by Peter David and penciled by George Perez. It was also inked by George Perez. And Star and Art Nichols. It was colored by George Stracuzzi, Martin Thomas, and Tom Smith. It was lettered by John Workman, and it had original covers by George Perez. So each issue is a lot. The first issue opens with a sex scene at night with a beautiful woman approaching a man in bed. We see the camera shutter and sound effects, so someone is clearly watching them. And then things are interrupted by this like hulking giant of a man in an executioner's costume. And carrying a stylized axe. And he then decapitates the woman. And it's suddenly revealed we're in a photo studio. Where the director shouts cut. And it turns out there's a whole film crew. like they, We're on the set of a snuff film. Like, <laughs> And the director chastises. The male actor. For not looking enthused enough during sex. Or horrified enough during the murder. And then there's a moment. Where nobody can find the model's head. And when they find it. The director is excited to capture her final expression on film. And then we cut from there and we meet the titular Saks and Violins. Sax is a softcore porn model named Juanita JJ Sachs and she works with Ernie Violins Schultz, who is a Vietnam vet who now works as her photographer. And Sachs shows up at Ernie's apartment and studio after fighting off a mugger in a particularly seedy version of Times Square. They do a photo shoot and we're treated to a bunch of pinup images of Sax. While they chew the fat, and we learn there's a rash of models going missing in the city. JJ flirts with Ernie. It's revealed Ernie's in love with her, but it's unrequited. And then she leaves to go hang out with her sister. Ernie's agent shows up right when she's leaving, and then tries to get Ernie to start selling his war photos. And Ernie flips out on him, like it's like it's big. Like he actually like breaks down the door of his dark room and like throws his agent against the wall because one photo in particular sets him off. And then we cut to a van that is transporting the body of the model on a dump run, and the passenger is ogling the snuff photos, which, I mean, okay. And he shoves one of the photos in the driver's face, which causes him to get distracted and crash the van, and the body is discovered by authorities. After that, JJ is at a health club with her sister, and they talk about how upset their dad is with JJ's career because her photos appeared in a magazine that's now in the army base where he's an officer at. I don't think we ever found out what kind of officer. We just know that he's an officer at an army base, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. And then JJ's sister is revealed to be a nun. And as they leave the club, they come across a newsstand with a cover story about the dead model who it turns out is one of JJ's friends. The drivers are confronted by the director and they are executed by Wendell, a.k.a. the executioner, who cuts off their heads by throwing like a, it, it looks like a laser disc, but it's like some sort of razor disc or something like that. Like he just, he pulls it out of a sleeve and then he throws it.
0: It's not a laser disc. It's a razor disc. I do like that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's so dumb. A little odd job homage there. Yeah. It's very much an odd job homage. It's very, it's weird. And then (laughs) JJ goes to the police who of course aren't any help. The cop that she deals with shows up periodically throughout the rest of the series. And basically is revealed that he never does anything. He's just kind of like following her. J.J. goes home and there's a recording on her answering machine from her friend Wendy, the dead model, and that message reveals the location for the snuff film shoot because she says that she needed a costume dropped off, and so J.J. calls Ernie and says she's going to go after the people who killed Wendy and doesn't heed his guidance to call the cops, so he busts out his old military clothes and firearms, which he has an absurd amount of, and you know gets ready to charge in and save the day while Sax is getting suited up and what I can only describe as like a combat dominatrix outfit. And yep. they announce okay. themselves in separate panels at the end of the book as Saxon violins. And that's where that issue ends. It's... Oh my gosh.
2: Uh,
1: it's a thing.
0: <laughs> so much yeah. happened that first one that I just was like... But what? so much happens in
1: <laughs> every issue
3: every yes. issue there's a lot going on and it's just a minor correction it is the executioner oh i'm sorry the executioner
0: it is the executioner
3: because he uses an axe we're gonna you know we're gonna make it the axe.
1: well and he's like He's like a brick shit house of a human being. And yeah. Like he is like eight feet tall, like compared to everybody else, and you know, and he just he only seems to have one outfit, which is the executioner outfit, and 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 it's this very large stylized medieval axe. It's wild. I don't understand. We don't. We never got these too. He has oh huge, yeah, enormous cod piece. Yeah, and and we never get an explanation. About like why he dresses that way or anything, it's whatever. Okay, no, but Rob
0: Liefeld would be very impressed by the physique.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah.
0: Also,
3: (laughs) does anybody else get the from Ernie's the drawing of Ernie and how he is drawn? Get some like vibes of like steroided out guy from Raiders of the Lost Ark who gets his hand, you know, like the the Nazi who gets his hand burned with the shape. Yes. Oh yeah look like you know like right out version of that guy
0: the first couple pages like he just had this richard nixon vibe to him and i was like what are you who are you supposed to look like
1: yeah it's uh it's weird you know and he's he's obviously meant to be in his what like i would say 40s maybe Mm -hmm. early 50s
0: yeah yeah well
3: if this is set in the 90s yeah it's a whole other question that we that you know we can get into now or later i don't care because it's like There's lots of references to things that happened in the 90s, but it looks like the 80s.
1: Oh, yeah. And that's one of my final thoughts about the series is that the Times Square that we get, it feels straight out of like an early to mid 80s movie where it's like it's still real seedy and kind of grimy. But then they sit there and they talk about Batman Returns or the kids later on talk about how Carmen Sandiego is their favorite computer game.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, living in New York. And I moved to New York in the '90s. This is like this is totally the '80s version of Times Square, mm-hmm. with like the prostitutes and everything. And it's just like this is not what it looked like in the '90s, especially by the time this was coming.
1: Yeah, because like Times Square got really cleaned up by like by Giuliani, right? Like that was yes. his, one of his big things. Was he turned that it into like, like a tourist location?
3: Clean up Times Square and to make it a, make New York City a tourist destination
1: yeah you know and same with like a lot of the fashion choices and things like that too like you're like oh, okay this feels like very 80s and i don't know what the decision was or you know why it worked out that way i'm almost wondering if it's supposed to be kind of like an alternate reality you know mm-hmm. where things are a little bit seedier still and all that but i mean like that would check out based on where this comic story goes
3: yeah but her fashion especially at the beginning i'm kind of like this is reminding me giving me like fame vibes mm-hmm. you know like early 80s you know sorts of things and i'm sort of like okay yeah i mean like are we imagining a world where you know we're not cleaning up Times square and it you know new york is a mess but yeah i can get the the thoughts on like what what that says socially about the the crux of this
1: comic series so yeah (laughs) we'll return to that thought (laughs) yeah (laughs) for now we're on to issue two which has Ernie visiting a sex toy shop and trying to track down Sax, And it turns out Sax bought a whip at the shop. And then Ernie asks the owner who the top dealer for snuff movies is, and he gets a lead from her directory. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, like, are snuff movies just like a commonly sold thing or commonly consumed thing in this reality? It's very strange because, you know, for those who don't know, snuff movies have long been an urban legend you can argue that they have become a reality in certain ways with social media and all that now i started to do a lot of research for this episode about snuff films and how they've been depicted in media and then i had to take a mental health break because i was just like this isn't something i want to really research yeah but yeah so Ernie goes to another adult store and has a confrontation with the Before we
0: move on, no, we need to talk about something very important. Oh, God, you wanted to talk about it too, was that it was this very flippant last, like as he's leaving that first store, he's talking to the woman who works there and the woman says, your dad and I miss you, by the way.
2: Oh,
3: God. It's his mom.
0: It's his mom. (laughs) Who
3: owns the sex shop.
0: Yep. And... (laughs) and
3: yeah like this like who's your leading provider of snuff films mom like it just
1: takes <laughs> out a whole other conversations we never want to have with our parents exactly
0: uh yeah my parents won't even listen to this podcast there's no way that would be a topic of conversation <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: it's such a throwaway yeah. and I, I was like oh this is, this is great
0: this is it great. was such a throwaway but i read it twice because i had to make sure i was looking at it correctly
1: <laughs> no same yeah so then Ernie goes to another adult store and he has a confrontation with the owner and the bouncer, which ends with him stuffing a grenade in the owner's mouth in order to get the location of the snuff film like producers. And it's revealed the movies are being shot at Singal Gal magazine, where some guy is escorting some very young children into an office right before they ask if they can go home after this. And then Sachs arrives and ties up the secretary and gets into a confrontation with Maurice, the director, inside the studio where the murders took place. She then fights off an entire crew of goons, captures the director, and then finds herself cornered by the goon squad holding guns on her before the executioner shows up. And meanwhile, the kids are trying to escape the studio, and they are rescued by Ernie and his violins persona. The executioner is about to murder Sachs before violins goes full Punisher, bursts in with guns ablazing, and murders the director after he brags that he'll walk thanks to the justice system. And then Ernie and JJ leave town in Ernie's hatchback with the kids that they rescued. And, like, that's issue two. <laughs> oh
0: my gosh.
1: Yeah. And then uh, issue three is where things really feel like the book starts to kind of go off the rails. Yeah. It turns out in... Oh, it went off the, the
0: rails here? Oh, here? oh! I feel like Just I here? feel like
1: this is where it went off the rails. Like it was, it was like already it, like <laughs> it was crazy to
3: begin with. It was already like shaking on the rails. There, it made a it made a a hard left turn at this point from where it was already going. Yeah, I mean was...
1: that is fair. That
0: is fair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so issue three, like it turns out that there is a penthouse office of a penis shaped tower, and and someone named Big O is running an organization that apparently manages a network of illegal operations like snuff films and child trafficking. And he and his kind of like executive committee are looking at security footage of sex and violins at the snuff film studio. By the way, Big O is presented in a way that reminded me of Dr. Claw from the 80s Inspector Gadget cartoons. Like, you know, yeah. it's only like in his high back chair and we see his hand with a cigar and all that. Um, He says he wants these two people responsible for damaging his operation dead. Someone from the org then calls a phone in what appears to be a dungeon where a very large dude named Moloch answers the phone and says that he's ready for anyone who's going to come and try to shut down his operation. We also get a shot of hands and manacles that have been severed from someone that are bleeding onto a teddy bear. And I feel like we need to talk about how uncomfortably racist Moloch feels with his, his look.
0: Yeah. Not only is it just, like, the general vibe, it's not it's the note, it's that, well, I say this like I don't have a septum ring myself, <laughs> Like, but it was a big old, like, septum ring, like a big old bowl kind of looking septum ring, and just... Yeah, well, and they
1: and they note that Moloch was the name of an old world god who was like associated with bulls and all that. And they have his hair stylized so it looks like horns. And then he's got kind of like the, you know, how bulls would have that fur, I guess. Or well, he's got like this weird kind of like shaved
0: back hair. Sh- hair, sha- hair well, It's shaped body on.
1: hair. It's not just back yeah. hair. It's also like on his chest his and chest everything. Like a V shape. Yeah. yeah, it's really uncomfortable. And, you know, it reminded me a bit of when we were reading Debbie Does Dallas and how people who were non-white were drawn, and it wasn't quite as racist, and I get what they were doing. They were trying to make kind of a supervillain who matched tonally with the idea of kind of like a demonic old world entity that has associations with an animal specifically, and but it's just, it's real uncomfortable every time he shows up. It's like, okay.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah, and that and the The topic of child trafficking and they're specifically going after white kids yeah Uh,
0: yeah yeah when they first had those two kids in that second issue i was like no 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 i know children should not be anywhere in these issues and because they are now i'm extra extra uncomfortable yeah it's not great
1: yeah and i mean we talked about this actually today at Lumicon. It yeah. it's really interesting how this comic feels in a lot of ways like a PG thirteen version of an R-rated story where it's like, okay, well, we can get away with some of this stuff without like, you know, without having to deal with the comics code, but at the same time, we can't show kids actually being trafficked. We can only allude to it. We can't show the decapitation itself. We can show the moment that's leading up to it, and then we can show like the head from behind and things like that when it's being held up. It's a lot of illusion. It's a lot of angles. Yeah. It's a lot of kind of like hinting at rather than like fully showing it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah. and that unfortunately, like, especially with like this issue, I'm like, what was going on with these kids? I thought they were being trafficked. Why are there severed hands and manacles bleeding onto a yeah. teddy bear? Yeah.
0: I think they were also being killed. Unfortunately, I think that, that was the you illusion. don't say. Well, it's just, I just mean like, yeah, I I don't know. I don't think they needed to make it any more like clearer than they did. They started in the snuff photograph realm, which I'm sorry. Why are you just taking pictures? Like it it just seemed like these were photographs. Like there were like video exists still, right?
1: Yeah, no. And that was the whole thing. (laughs) So they keep on referring to it as snuff films. But the thing is, is we only see Maurice taking photos with an SLR camera.
0: Yeah.
3: They, he's got a f- film camera on, like strapped. Oh, okay. In that moment, like you see it when they're looking for the head mm. in the first issue, mm. and he like pulls up the he's he pulls up the his like still camera, uh, film camera, and like takes a picture of the head. But you can see when they when we're first like when he cuts and he's yelling at Hart, I think is the name of the actor. yeah, that sounds right. And he but he's got like five cameras strapped around him, and like a couple of them are <laughs> older super eight style or super 16 uh, film cameras or like, like motion picture film, Mm -hmm. not still. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So who knows? He was shooting film and then he like takes out like the, the stills
1: as well. Yeah. But that's the thing is like, cause you know, the driver was looking at the stills and then later on Maurice reveals when he has the driver and the passenger killed, he's like, well, the photos hadn't been retouched yet. So you can clearly make out the head of the actor. Right. You know, it, whatever. Okay. Anyway, so after all of this, we cut to somewhere in the woods where JJ is celebrating how she avenged Wendy and goes skinny dipping. Ernie shows up and is like, mm, this may not be the best time for that. And then Sax is like, whatever. And she jumps him and they end up having sex in the lake. And then we see the child trafficking operation in full, which is being run out of someplace called Sunshine Education Products. And there's an entire classrooms worth of kids like playing with toys of like the company's mascot, Jerry, the gerrymander. <laughs> and a dude shows up in the Jerry costume, makes the kids sing his theme song while he takes one of the kids away. And he like the way that he takes the kid away is he doesn't hold the hand. It's the mouth to the costume opens and we see these really evil looking eyes inside. And then he like swallows the kid in the costume and then walks out. And it makes for a great visual, but it's absolute nonsense. And then Ernie and JJ get woken up by the kids that they rescued. Sax says that last night wasn't a good idea. And then the kids show them where their friends are being held by Moloch. Jerry and Moloch are seen menacing Jackie, the kid that was taken earlier, and it's revealed he's going to be apparently sold into white slavery. Their words. I don't know. it's, It's very uncomfortable.
3: Yeah. Which I I think it plays into that whole like this is sort of a boogeyman like racist thing, like, oh, we're gonna we're only taking white
1: kids. Yeah, uh, which I mean, that was that was a very popular urban legend in the late eighties, early nineties, I feel. Like yeah. I feel like I grew up with my parents being like, You have to be hyper vigilant, you can't get into strangers' vans, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, I've never was seen the stranger danger. Yeah. yeah. And also a little bit of the satanic panic, like, yeah. you know.
3: Yeah, we're gonna, I think we are going to talk about these topics specifically. I'll hold on to like a couple of my thoughts <laughs> on this
1: until later. Stay tuned, kids.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> keep, them, keep them wanting
1: more. Yeah, and then Jackie is sent off in a van, and then it returns like a minute or two later, and it's being driven by the original two kids who then crash into the warehouse, and they're wearing like pots and pans for helmets, which was kind of a great visual. Send the kids in first. Oh yeah, no, totally. (laughs) They're disposable. It's fine. There's more of them.
0: (laughs) Tiny meat shields.
1: Yep. JJ and Ernie then raid the building. Jackie ends up killing Jerry the gerrymander with one of the guard's Uzis, but Moloch manages to escape after a prolonged fight with Ernie and JJ. The kids are told to wait for emergency services while Ernie and JJ sneak off again. Apparently... JJ is like actually totally into Ernie now because we get a final scene of them cuddling naked next to a campfire, noting how a piece of jewelry that Moloch was wearing might be a lead. And then it turns out in the final panel that JJ took off the head of the gerrymander costume as a souvenir for Ernie wink. Like, like that's the thing is it actually like winks at the camera. It's so weird. It's, it's, it's yeah, got yeah. like, it's got bullet holes in it.
3: Yeah. And
1: also like, uh,
3: She's not hot for him in the sense that you know, she's still like it's that she gets turned on by the violence. Yeah, yes, yeah. and the violence go hand in hand. That's when they really join up. When the violence is there, she's she's hot for hot for Ernie.
1: Yeah, and it's I don't know. I have thoughts about this whole thing. We'll discuss it in a few. So let's talk about issue four, which is <laughs> the final issue of the series, and it is a thing. <laughs> This issue is told mainly as a flashback from Sachs, who is currently in a hospital bed, and she is recounting how she wound up there to both her sister, the nun, and that detective from New York, who has basically been useless throughout the entire series. He reveals that he showed up because he wants to sell the story, because he is one of the few cops not on the take, and has like four kids to put through college. There is a brief explanation about how they got to New Orleans, and about Ernie's untreated PTSD where i guess he apparently was the sole survivor of his platoon in vietnam and then murdered some farmers that he thought were members of the viet cong and then that's never discussed again oh, very unclear it's it's very unclear it it's some beautiful beautiful artistic sequences like they look amazing but it it, it is very it's very vague and I'm like, I don't know. I feel like we didn't actually need this because I, I feel like it leaves more questions unanswered than anything else. And then we immediately move on from that to reveal that we're in New Orleans during Mardi Gras, and they're there because Moloch was wearing a crew medallion. Crew medallions belong to people who organize parades for Mardi Gras itself. JJ ends up dragging Ernie into an alley for some casual sex against the wall. And it turns out that they are right below an apartment where Big O is hanging out with his enforcer, who is a jacked woman named. Yep, here it comes. Rugbuncher.
0: Like, (sighs) (sighs) it's so bad. It's real bad. It's not great. Mm -hmm.
1: Ernie and JJ then find the building associated with the crew medallion that they recovered. But it's apparently the headquarters for like a religious fanatic organization now. Ernie investigates while JJ spots Moloch's silhouette through a window and she decides to also check things out on her own. She scales the wall and eavesdrops on Moloch and Big O, who it turns out are brothers. And then they have been planning for an act of domestic terrorism via the religious fanatics attaching bombs to a parade float. Rugmuncher. Almost captures J.J., and then we are treated to a big action sequence right through the middle of Mardi Gras. Ernie figures out which float has the bombs attached, and then he starts to drive it away from the crowd. Rugmuncher and J.J. get into a huge fight on the float, which is why J.J. is in the hospital, because she got thrown off and was being dragged while holding onto her whip and got smashed into a bunch of things. Ernie manages to shoot Rugmuncher. Muncher.
0: Yeah, like her bustier top, like comes.
1: Oh, yeah. It's so bad. Yeah,
0: like so bad. Like she had to have such bad road burn. Oh, Everywhere. yeah. Everywhere. 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 Boobs were full out.
1: She did not have a lot of coverage in the first place. And then all of a sudden she is topless and being dragged behind. And it's like, okay. <laughs> like, mm.
0: Does she have nipples any longer? We don't know. We don't know. Probably not. Because she looks like shit in the hospital. Oh,
1: she yeah. Looks, no, she, she is just covered to in bandages. Absolute advantages.
0: crap. Yeah, and her face is swollen and got a black eye.
1: Oh, yeah. So Ernie manages to shoot Rug Muncher before she kills JJ. The bomb goes off just as the float goes off a pier over the water. And then we cut back to the present where Moloch, disguised as a nurse, sneaks into JJ's hospital room and tries to kill her out of revenge. But JJ ultimately manages to stab him in the neck with an empty syringe and give him an air embolism. Ernie crashes through the window right after and takes JJ with him on the run. The doctor and JJ's sister explain what happened to the cops, and that's pretty much it. Tell them to leave them alone. Yeah. <laughs> so you leave Jack
3: Burton alone.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: We owe him a debt. Uh, uh, yeah. No, Molag just sneaks in pretending to be a nurse. It's like who's this eight hundred pound like? That's just it. Seven and a half foot. Put- all nurse, really stealthy. <laughs> Super stealthy.
0: Yeah, we've seen her before, no problem. Yeah, Security, yeah. clear.
3: <laughs> not the cop who is outside. Yeah, doesn't, nothing looks out of place here.
1: Well, and he literally says the dead cop outside the room. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, Because
3: yeah, there was somebody stationed outside, and he killed yeah, the... Supposed, yeah. like, we're not even going to show it. I killed him. What do you know? Killed that guy. Yeah. Because we're yeah, going to tie funny. up that loose end. But all of this other stuff,
1: it's so bad, man. Not gonna even. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, so who has thoughts about the series?
3: Oh, uh, get <laughs> your face.
2: <laughs>
3: it. Oh, I think it would have been better if they had taken more time with the original villain. They yeah. Just focused on. Oh, there's a snuff film. Like maybe, and then let's let's get some more backstory on both of these characters. Mm-hmm. Get more of Ernie's backstory, maybe some of JJ's, because we don't really get any of JJ's backstory.
1: We know that she's like a military brat.
3: That's it. That's that's her whole backstory. But yeah, like the bouncing around of villains. Like, is it you know a corporation? Now it's like they're the religious fanatics, and it just feels like they it feels like they they did a brainstorming session on who are some villains we could have for this. And right. then they just like, we're going to just jam them all into, into war issues. Like, we're not even going to transition between them. We're just going to, like, <laughs> they're all the same people.
1: Yeah. I think it would have worked much better if it was a kind of a little bit more of a mystery of like them tracking down the, you know, the snuff film manufacturers and everything, but also like the fact that they have apparently just some mid level office building. Where where this is all being done, including a fully furnished front office, and they apparently have a magazine network where they're distributing all this stuff. Like it, okay, whatever.
3: Yeah, I'm actually looking up because like, they gave an address. I'm trying to figure out where that is. Oh man. Um. Yeah it's it's in Midtown, uh, not Midtown, like Lower Midtown. Is it a real address? Yeah, yeah it's a real address. It's uh Chelsea Hotel. Hmm. No. I'm not sure why they tracks. chose. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's right next to another, like an office building. Reminds me of like all these like, buildings where you'd go, like when I was an actor, where you just like go into these buildings for auditions. It'd mm-hmm. be on, like, oh, this is on the twentieth floor of this building. Go up in here, and we're gonna have a little audition in here, and there's a little studio. Like, yeah, I agree with you. If they had stretched this out, made it more of a mystery, trying to find where these guys were, I think that that story would have been better. Than just sort of the jumbled mess that it becomes after they kill the snuff film producers, yeah. Because after that, it just sort of like deteriorates quite rapidly.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it wasn't exactly great in the first place, but yeah. No,
3: I'm just saying. But for yeah. what they had in the beginning, just goes out the window. Yeah, sort of like
1: like it's just like we're
3: gonna throw as much shit against this wall as we can do and see what sticks. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, like, we talked about how it's so weird how this feels like a story that was actually meant to take place in, like, the early 80s, but then we have those references to other things that, you know, are clearly very recent. I don't know, I feel like there's so many inconvenient plot points throughout this whole thing that are just hand-waved away. Like, the fact that there's just apparently some evil corporate empire just running all of this shit is just wild to yeah, me yeah, and... and
3: it's just like we don't talk about that anymore it's just like oh now they're in new orleans and now like they're running a crew for a float and they're in charge of a religious fanatics they're using to create some sort of domestic terrorism thing. it's like wh- weren't they a successful corporation that like just in the last issue like why have we switched to this sort of like you know shadowy mm-hmm. you know religious it just felt like there was too many strings going on. And like, they were just like, Oh, they could also be doing this and they could also be doing this. We can make these guys really bad. And It's like, we need to like, you need to focus, focus on what you're doing. You could have made this like in a, each one of these adventures, a thing that yeah. don't, they don't all have to be connected. It'd be like, Oh, they get into the two of them, their relationship. Now that they've formed one, I'm making this better already. Take me back in time. I'm going to rewrite Saxon and violence. It's going to be a it's going to be a hit. <laughs> but that their relationship is born out of like we've got to find a thing like, like this something that's going on and combat this because that's what like keeps the juices flowing for their their relationship. I think that would
1: have been a better way to go. This is yeah, well, kind
3: of a turd. You're polishing a turd, but. Like... <laughs>
1: There's also a line where Big O is talking to Moloch in New Orleans, and he says, ours is a diversified organization catering to perversion on one hand and striking out against overt sexuality on the other. Mixed messages are the best. It makes the forbidden fruit that much sweeter. And I'm like, that sounds fine. Like, right. and, then, and then you stop and you think about it, and you're like, that's nonsense. That makes no sense.
3: Yeah, that's just saying. We do everything.
1: Yeah. It's like, all right, whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And reading the letters from the writer at the end of these, there's a lot of, like, I'm going to try to explain what I, like, this is highbrow, and I'm trying to make this a thing, and I'm trying to make this, like, you know, a statement, which the actual writing of the story does not,
1: like, back up those yeah, and it's interesting because, like, in the opening for the trade paperback, Peter David talks about how the editors were, like, balking at the depiction of Mardi Gras, and he's like, no, I totally saw all that stuff when I was there. And I'm kind of sitting there, and I'm like, maybe, I don't know. I Yeah, I went to Mardi Gras
3: in the 90s. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm like, mm. I actually, yeah, yeah. It wasn't even Mardi Gras, it was the St. Joseph's Parade, and that that was all going on there, so.
2: Okay, I mean,
1: yeah. I will say it feels like a very slick like book. Like Perez's art is just—it's always beautiful—and David's writing is not bad, even though I think the story itself is not great. But I also feel that it's very dumb, and a lot of it hasn't aged terribly well.
3: I don't want to yeah. step on anyone's toes here, but like I think that it has this sort of revenge porn. I mean, the who is calling him Rambo over and over again. Was it his oh, mom? Yeah.
1: I think it was Big O,
3: or no, 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 Big no. O. It was his mom. Was it In the sex shop? She's asking him for stuff, and I think that she's she kept calling him like a hold your horses, Rambo.
0: Yeah, she may have done. I know that the I know Big O called him Rambo too. I think
3: the first thing I thought of when I was re- started reading this was the original Death Wish, which was the original story on Death Wish. I can't remember if it's the wife or the daughter or maybe both.
1: The Daughter, I think, is the sequel. And the okay. funny thing is that I noted Death Wish in my notes, too.
3: The, you know, getting killed, and the Revenge, and, like, the first two are very personally connected. And then it just starts, like, to devolve into, like, hey, it's just this guy who's going to kill some people. hmm And I thought about the one where he goes to New York, and he's, like, up in the Bronx. It's also set in the 80s, and it's, like, these old people who are going to, like, the gangs are coming after them in their building, and one of the gang members is a purse snatcher. And he's really fast. And the, these old people are like, nobody can catch this guy. He's so fast. And like Charles Brownson's like, Oh, my friend Wildy can catch him. And it turns out his friend Wildy is a Wildy Magnum, which is a 473 Magnum handgun, Jesus Christ. Elephant gun. And he just like this guy steals somebody's purse and Charles Bronson just shoots him in the back as he's running away. And I'm just like, it's gotten to the point where like you're just executing someone for all, and there's a lot to be said about that in the current state of the world right now mm-hmm. uh, where people of color are dying for mm-hmm. minor infractions or nothing yeah or nothing at all uh, and that's where it kind of like took me to like the story is trying to give me that like feeling of like oh yeah they're they're taking things into their own hands the cops are no like are no help and it's it's this sort of looking at This was a very popular genre, and still, in some ways, is. I mean, you think Mm -hmm. about Taken and how that you know reinvigorated Liam Neeson's career and has extended it.
1: I mean, Bruce Willis remade Death Wish, didn't he? And it, I'm
3: glad it flopped terribly because it was like, why, why did you need to do that? Uh, But yeah, like it just kept giving me that feeling, and I was reading those notes from the writer and just thinking, you're trying to make this better. And you're trying yeah. to like say that it's some kind of like intellectual exploration of how sex and violence are linked. But I get, like I said, none of that from the actual story.
1: Yeah, like he, he does just, that in the intro to the trade paperback too, and I was just like, I feel like we're doing a lot of kind of retconning here.
3: <laughs> yeah, he's trying to like polish the turd and just like say, like, oh no, I was, I was making this about people who really only want to see sex and violence and then I'm turning the tables on them no you're not the titillation quite literally yeah of this this series of books like is its own snuff film honestly Mm -hmm. you think about it like it's just killing people like this in this comic book its own sort of snuff film in a way and i thought you could have really delved into some topics that actually would have you know if you really thought this was something to talk about like then you really actually get into them
1: yeah, and I think really they were using the series as a way to be like, look, Marvel can do sex and violence just like Image does, and like get teenage readers to like purchase yeah. it kind of like surreptitiously, where they're just like, hey, uh, slide it to me on the low-low.
0: As a woman reading this, well, it was uh, it was a little intense. It was a little yeah. intense because the women were either objects to kill, or they were the pun after they were actually dead. That was exciting. That was really mm. fun. Or they were, you know, had some ridiculous, disgusting name like Rug Muncher. Yeah. If they're going to be at any part of the action. And even then she was just a tool.
1: We can all agree that Rug Muncher is easily the most offensive part of the series, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, which is hard to do because this is a whole (laughs) series of comics about snuff films and child trafficking. Yeah. Yeah. So the fact that that's the most offensive thing. Gotta, gotta take a think. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah, I had to take it with a grain of salt because it was a little rough reading it as a woman
2: <laughs> Yeah,
0: and seeing how little the plot seemed to care about them. And even the children, the plot really didn't care about the children. They were just there to be saved.
1: No. yeah.
0: Throw them on a railroad track.
1: They yeah. reminded me a lot of like kids in action films or that kind of like Shane Black era where it's like you got to have some quirky kids in there to kind of make things a little bit more family friendly or something. I don't know. Funny, maybe funny in quotations.
0: Yeah. Like I said, when I saw kids coming on the scene, I was like uh, immediate. No, immediately. I don't like where this is headed. And I, I continue to not like where it was going. (laughs) So that was exciting.
3: Yeah. So Especially like, yeah, we topped it off with the the kids thing with sending the kids in first as like cannon fodder. Like, what the fuck? Like, like, I'm gonna gonna rescue these kids.
0: The kids come upon them naked. That was something you left out, buddy. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. In the morning, but they were naked, like on each other. And one of the kids is like, Did you do it?
1: Oh, and then they have a whole thing where it's like, My dad said he and my mom used to do it all the time until I came along. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Like, and then
0: my dad didn't want to anymore. And it's like, Wow, you're really telling a story here.
3: Yeah, your childhood drama. That's well, really like... Been, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I feel like maybe Peter David was working through some stuff with the story.
0: Yeah. <laughs> My gosh, why well, have a therapist when you can write comics?
1: Oh man! All right, so we've talked about the story. How do you all feel about the artwork? I mean, Jessica I think was that was Jessica. the
0: redeeming, <laughs> the redeeming yeah. factor of this entire comic. Because I mean, it. The art was cool. The art was neat for what it was. I actually really liked like Jerry the Gerrymander. I actually really did. Like the design, it was really neat. I could totally see that being some sort of a kid's icon. Very Jeffrey the giraffe.
1: Yeah, Barney. (laughs) Well, he also looked just kind of like a differently colored Barney the dinosaur. And I mean, which again, it goes back to that whole like, we don't know exactly what time frame this is, but it's clearly pulling from that.
0: Yeah. Or, like, but that bumblebee from, like, the bumblebee tuna. Yeah. You know, the one. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, I thought that, like, I agree. If anything, the art elevated the material quite a bit. I loved the panel that was, like, the uh, <laughs> art of Mendez, now at the Met. I don't know if you guys caught that. Like, there was like a, there's, like, a panel of, like, New York City, and there's a billboard, and it's the art of Mendez, now mm-hmm. at the Metropolitan Museum. I thought it was A nice little nod, Mm -hmm. but I thought that like the again the first two issues I felt like were a higher quality, and the second two I'm kind of like things sort of went down except for issue four, the Mardi Gras spread where they're running through Mardi Gras and JJ is for some reason kicking the shit out of some Mardi Gras goer, but it's like a two page panel. It's it's like,
1: like a two page spread. Yeah, it's great.
3: It's like peak '90s Marvel. You know, it reminded me a lot of there would be some, like, X-Men issues where you'd get, like, Psylocke. Like, I just kept thinking, like, she looks like Psylocke, Mm -hmm. kicking somebody in the face. And there's, like, a hundred things going on in this two-page single panel. Yeah. The one complaint I had about it is when, they like, in the beginning, we're using shading and things to cover Mm -hmm. uh, JJ's breasts. We're very much like not showing we're not showing nipple you know it's like oh it's it's forbidden or whatever and i thought it was just giving you enough mystery but also it was still sexy in its way it's like we're still giving you the impression but like you know using shading and things and then it just got to the beginning of the third issue and it's just like that's over
1: yeah
2: mm-hmm.
3: that's gone
1: yeah it went from like pinups to full-on pornography like this is the best right. way I can describe it. Even though it wasn't like full on pornography, but it feels like that's kind of how the transition went. Yeah. And
3: it, with no, there's no transition to it either. Like when there, she's out there at night, skinny dipping or whatever, you could definitely do some shading to like lead us into that. Instead. It's just like, she's fully nude. We're getting nipple and everything. Like as opposed to like what it was in like the first issue where, like I said, using the, like shadows, the artwork itself was much better in mm. that sense. I also felt like for some reason, I don't know if you guys got this the covers, they know they're all done with the same person, but it's just like, it looked different to me, except for the, the Mardi Gras cover. Like the other covers I felt like looked like hastily done. They looked like mm-hmm. things that like my friends in high school who were very, very good artists, one of them actually ended up working for Marvel for a little while, would do in their, their notebooks. It's so just something about maybe it's the, again, the shading or whatever, but it looked like a hastily done drawing.
1: The cover for the trade paperback doesn't look that good either compared to the artwork on the inside. It just, it looks much simpler. It's not nearly as dynamic. Yeah.
3: It was like a notch or two notches below what was inside.
1: Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe Perez was rushed. I don't know. All right. So we have two tropes of shadowy crimes in the series, which are snuff films and child trafficking. How did you feel about their use and portrayal?
3: I have thoughts. Uh, Jessica, I don't know if you want
2: to.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you go first.
0: I'll, I'll pop in. I just.
3: Yeah. Um, I thought like the, the snuff film thing, like their indifference towards the death and like it just becomes really perfunctory. I thought that really shows their cruelty.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And like the, the photographer, director, like Maurice guy, like he seemed kind of cliche, but the executioner and how concerned he was about his art. Mm hmm. I thought might be some commentary on how other artists like treat sex and violence. Mm. My favorite line about the child trafficking timeline was more in prison kids. That sounds exciting. Yeah. It felt like you didn't get into, and I know we're going to talk about the racism of this whole thing. Like the people who were affected most by sex work and human trafficking are not white people. No. The vast majority of them are people of color. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it just felt like, oh, we're going to make the white people the victims, except, you know, JJ is Latina, wrong way, but like, you know, all of the other women, like her friend Wendy is white. Going back to like the beginning of it seemed like the, the first two issues felt like it was more cohesive than what they were trying to say. When we get into the human trafficking and the kids, it just feels like it's just like thrown out. It just yeah. feels like, yeah. you know, oh, here's a boogeyman we're going to, yeah. we're going to create and strangely, all the Big O and Moloch are also people of color and
1: you know in the scene with with Moloch talking with Big O we finally see Big O's face and it's such a kind of like a blink and you miss it sort of thing it's not a big reveal but he looks like he is possibly Asian yeah, maybe it's kind of you know again vague but he is not white he is a person of color
0: yeah that it centering whiteness feels like really on brand for this (laughs) and the tropes i mean it just let me let me take every single 90s concern that the white people were concerned about and just Mm -hmm. throw them into this comic like we've got stranger danger we've got snuff films these were all concerns (laughs) that again wasn't really a thing that was Like, stranger danger, you can plan for stranger danger. And yes, some kids do get picked up by strangers. The majority of kidnappings happen in families with people that know the kids. Like, that is the majority, like, statistically. And so the fact that we were so externally focused really tells a story about, I think, what our generation is dealing with now, because we weren't focused internally and now we're having to like do that work inside ourselves because our parents weren't there. were not there were like, but there are so many dangers out here. It's like, what's where I'm a latchkey child. Like you just left me here. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> but yes, yeah, strangers are the problem. You're right.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of othering. It's not just like the urban legends for both of these, because that was like a big thing, but. I remember there were a lot of talk shows dealing with this sort of thing too, like focusing on and raising the alarm about all this stuff. It really feels like they were leaning into the urban legend, particularly with the idea that there were these massive operations lurking just under the surface of society and perpetuating this stuff. (sighs) I don't know. I feel like they were like, oh, this sounds like a good topic. And then they did no real research on any of it because they realized that that would make things inconvenient for them in terms of storytelling.
3: Yeah, like you said, there were a lot of talk shows talking about it. But like they sat down, watched an afternoon of Geraldo and Sally Jesse Raphael and whatever else was on in the nineties, and like, okay, that's that's this is something people are concerned about. Oh, this got pretty high ratings, but people, oh, let's make this an an evil of this. And there's like discussion in that le- in the fourth issue there about like somebody's going off like one of the religious zealots going off about Bill Clinton getting elected, mm. and now you know, he's he's high. And all that stuff and I was just like,
1: um. there were potential plans to bring back a Saxon violin series that would have J.J. interacting with Clinton, according to of course. According to the intro for the Trade Paperback, I was just like, "No. Mm. <laughs> oh God...
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. You know what? And what's what's fascinating to me is that while this is played out like, oh, there are these underground industries that are treating people so terribly. Mm, Okay, I'm sorry. Has anybody met Hugh Hefner? Oh, yeah. Because that guy's a piece of shit. And he because people just feel okay giving him money.
1: Well, and the thing is that he cultivated that image of like being kind of like the charming old man. And then after he died, it came out and everyone's like, oh, God, no, he was really fucking awful like I met him once when I worked at Disneyland and he was very nice to me while he asked for directions to the bathroom but like it was really gross like all the stuff that he pulled and it makes me really sad that like there is this myth that has been lionizing the guy for you know decades
2: Hmm. hmm
3: yeah not good it's a whole other podcast we could do just on that
0: <laughs> yeah oh My gosh I would get burnt out so quickly on that
1: yeah, I think it would just make me too angry and sad. Kind of on that note, how did both of you feel about the depiction of sex workers and, and photographers? And do you feel like Saxon violence's backgrounds were well incorporated into the story? Uh,
0: what, what background for sex? She <laughs> like, has no background. She didn't here's... exist as a person. <laughs> yeah. What? What? She was, she was boobs and an ass. I, you know, that's what she was in this comic, unfortunately. She also had a
1: magnificent head of hair.
0: She did have good hair. She did have good hair. I will give her that. Yeah.
3: Uh, Yeah. There's no discussion of like why people get into sex work Mm -mm. or why people might choose to be like this as a lifestyle. She was just a sort of a throwaway that she does it because she likes it. Yeah. That's it. There's no discussion of why other people do it, which is usually because of financial reasons or a history Mm -hmm. of abuse and trauma. Mm -hmm. why they get into being you know in in that industry and that that there's no discussion of that whatsoever but that is also that feels brand for where for for this title it just feels like oh you know like you're saying it's very uncomfortable to read this as a woman the women are treated as just sort of like throwaways um and like why should we bother to discuss why like (laughs) ernie gets his backstory which is not very well explained but like we yeah. get nothing with JJ. Oh, her dad's in the army. That's why she's, that's why she is a porn model. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's too strict. She's got daddy issues. Um, mm.
0: Only other time that they actually portrayed sex workers would be in silhouette form, you know, standing next to a pole and leaning into somebody's car.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And
3: Wendy, whatever, doing, mm-hmm. she's ostensibly doing a softcore. Foreign film that's what she thinks she's doing yeah there's no depiction of them in in general
1: also we don't see ernie working as a photographer or doing anything photography based really after the first issue
3: which yeah and i thought that that was actually spot on how he's represented in the first issue which is like the whole setup in his apartment i actually rented a few apartment studios early on in my career in New York City, like people with photographers would transform their living rooms into like a little studio, different backdrops and things like like for the time, especially if this was that in the 80s, which it like feels like it wants to be um, the equipment that he's using is also very accurate. Cameras are definitely 80s cameras. I thought it was very interesting that uh, Ernie's camera has no branding on it, but Maurice's because all of those cameras at that time period of that style, had the brand's name across it Ernie's does not Maurice the snuff guy is Nikon so I don't know if this was some sort of commentary about people who use Nikons I don't know um Ooh. but um I thought that his depiction as a as a photographer in what we got of it which seemed very fleshed out in that sense
1: you know, what's funny is I'm looking uh, back through the trade and I don't see any branding on any of the cameras. So I think they may have removed that for like rights purposes or something.
3: Maybe. But I like saw like there's like one shot, I think I feel like it was when Maurice is like taking a picture of the head or maybe it's the henchman when the henchmen are the guys who are driving the truck or leaving a camera. It's just one of those shots of Maurice has uh, it says Nikon on it.
1: Yeah. Um, so the funny thing is like I'm looking at that exact frame right now and it's Totally blank on the camera, but I'm willing to bet that that got changed with the trade paperback because the Probably. trade paperback came out in 2006.
0: Nikon's like, take my name off of that shit.
3: Yeah. I don't I want mean, to be associated with the, you know, the film guys.
1: Yeah. I can't say that I would blame them. hmm. What do you guys feel about the romance between Eddie and JJ? Romance? <laughs> Jessica's just shaking her <laughs> head. <laughs>
0: Pull out your big old shoehorn, guys. Yeah. It's another instance where we're just gonna try to shove in some romance into this plot line there was some unrequited love which I get but then she's like I'm turned on by violence and I'm like really yeah really I don't know couldn't be me that's all I'm saying
3: I liked the unrequited romance yeah I was fine with angle of it, yeah. it, felt like it you could have kept that going like that's that he's you know he just feels like he wants to protect her and right. you know that's you know you could make something out of that but then once again we got into that third issue and like i just feel like it, it started to devolve
0: yeah and to your point i mean they could have built it into something you know they right. could have said hey we've both like trauma bonding we've both gone through this experience like i do see now that you are a person that i might be able to spend more time with but that's not the vibe of it it's just like She's violence like, let's fuck
3: yeah she was <laughs> like, like you had guns and you were so powerful
1: it's JJ skinny dipping, and then she's like, "You've seen me naked plenty of times." And Ernie's like, "All right, fine." And then she basically jumps him, and she like throws him into the lake with her, like with her body weight. And it's actually it's a really great image of them like falling into the water, and his pants and shoes just immediately coming off from the force of the impact, which is cool. But like, it just comes out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: If yeah, it just feels like oh, well, they gotta they gotta consummate this relationship somehow. it feels like such a middle-aged white
1: guy fantasy it's just like all right
3: to go with the the, the revenge porn
1: yeah Uh, all right well marvel clearly banked on this series being a hit and they put some money behind it there is a platinum variant cover which i so i should note i own every issue of the series i also own the platinum variant which is signed by george perez i have a special signed edition of number one that was given away by some vendor (laughs) that comes with this giant certificate of authenticity. I will absolutely say that this is not aged well and it is not good, but there is a part of me that is so utterly charmed by how dumb this is. But anyway, so there was a platinum cover, there was a trading card set, there was a statue of J.J. Sachs with her whip.
0: Yes, I want it. (laughs) (laughs) Keep an eye out for it.
1: I know what to get you for Christmas.
0: It was eighty five dollars in the nineties. Yeah, is all I'm saying. Like that was already pretty pricey. I mean, mm-hmm. statues are pricey, and I can appreciate that. The artistry, I, I get it. I do get it. But still, like eighty five dollars in the nineties.
1: Yeah, and Dependent. I've found a couple on eBay, and they're not cheap.
0: Well, but... oh, not shocked.
1: But if I find one at a flea market, that's going to be your Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's.
3: I think it might be the same thing. I the I was reading like digital versions they were like scanned in and in the back, I don't know if it's the same thing. Like it looked yeah. like he was talking about like, it looked like an action figure to me.
1: Yeah. Like, but it's, it's an, it's an actual, game? like it's a, it's a statue and then the hand like pops off and there's different whips, I guess, or something. Different oh, whips. okay. Yeah, that's sense. what it
0: was. I knew there were, there was some sort of change out. That's why I thought it was an action figure too. Initially. Yeah. it no,
3: looked like, it's, looked, it's like, there was some statue. sort of like joint that moved
1: around. I was like, What? Huh? Yeah. I really want to pick up a box of the trading cards that they made because I just want to see what they're well, like. How would
3: they be?
0: I'm like, oh no! Yeah.
1: From this
3: four issue series, what kind of like trading card?
1: I think it's just a bunch of panels. The other thing is, at this point in the '90s, they were making so many comic book based trading cards. Marvel yeah. had their stuff, DC had their stuff, and then like there was a Deathmate trading card set. It was everywhere. And then they always came with, like, holograms and foils and things like that. The
3: collectibles.
1: Yeah. A a holographic, like, foil trading card from Saxon Violins trading cards. If they exist, I want it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you do. That's going to be your Christmas present (laughs) if I can find one.
1: (laughs) Good. Yeah. There was also, like, a lot of buzz around this comic, like, when it came out amongst my friends in middle school. I think it was because it was, like... A lot of us were were able to like you know somehow sneak copies because it was suggested for mature readers, but comic shop owners didn't care. They were like, whatever, fine. And I found some sales numbers though on Comicron, which is the site that tracks comic sales numbers. Issues three and four show up on the charts for November and December of 1993. They were both in the 160s sales rank. And for reference, Quasar was at the end of its series run, and even those issues right before the cancellation we're outselling Saxon violins so mm.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah this feels like a that maybe the sales were like that sort of oh it's the forbidden fruit again yeah. a line that's brought up in the in the comic like oh you know oh well, you'll love this it's, it's naughty it's a naughty comic yeah nothing else to say about that it just feels like uh, we're gonna get some readership by having this overtly sexual and violent comic book.
1: yeah <laughs> Comicron also doesn't have info for September or October of 1993, so I'm not sure how well the first two issues sold, but it sounds like it was more of a cult hit than a genuine one since we never saw a follow-up series, but this may have also been a victim of the comics industry implosion that was happening right around this time. And that said, Saxon violence did return eventually. In the mid-aughts, Peter David had a series called Fallen Angel, which was being published by DC. And right before the series was canceled with issue 20, he brought Saxon Violins into the storyline where they show up in the city of Bette Noire to find and end a child pornography ring. Perez apparently contributed to those issues, and the characters continued to appear when IDW started publishing the second volume. But even though Perez and David owned the rights to the characters, David gave an interview with Newsarama where he noted that there were so many legal costs involved with bringing him over that DC almost didn't bother letting him bring them into the comic but they did and i think that's why dc ended up being the one that published the first trade paperback of the series in 2007 and then idw republished the trade in 2016 and that's kind of where saxon violins existence ends so before we move on (laughs) i was gonna ask does anyone have any final thoughts
0: Oh, no, I'm just I'm just glad that that's all there was to it. I, I got it like I ugh, I flinched a little bit when you said that there was more in the uh, <laughs> 2000s. I did. Just flinch. I was, it was visceral.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I mean, my thought was like, yeah, good riddance. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I mean,
0: <laughs> it's yeah. it's
1: a. Uh, like after reading through all this i'm like i'm just exhausted like oh god but anyway it's weird and it's interesting historically and there are parts of it that i do feel are charming mainly perez's artwork but like yeah i don't need to go back to this
0: yeah Yeah.
3: you can draw a different story
0: exactly exactly and for all the listeners again we read it so you don't have to (laughs) so you're welcome
1: yeah, I don't know how much these comics are going for now. They were really easy to find when I picked them up. I think I got the entire run, including the signed variants and all that, for less than $20. I know yeah. that when George Perez announced that he had terminal cancer, vendors were jacking up the price. I don't know if they've come back down since then.
2: Mm.
1: I will say that I am rather pleased with the fact that George Perez's signatures that I own are on this book. <laughs> It's like, it checks out. That goes in the trash pile. (laughs) For those of you who are not aware, the trash pile is what I call my comic collection. (laughs) Uh, Is everybody ready to move on to Brain Wrinkles? Sure. All right. Let's mosey. All right. We are now at Brain Wrinkles, which is the part of the show where we talk about one thing that is comics or comics adjacent that has just been kicking around our noggin for the last couple of days. I've been talking for a bit. So, Casey or Jessica, you get to choose who goes first.
3: I May mean, I'll jump in there.
0: Why don't we have our guest go first? Yeah, <laughs> go ahead.
3: I've been thinking a lot about oversaturation of comic movies mm. and like what's going on at DC. And how does, like, I feel like you know, from what I've heard, like Marvel at Disney is pulling back on projects and being like, okay, maybe we've hit a point where people are like, Quite keep up with all this dc whatever mess that they've got going on there and i'm kind of wondering one of the things a little sidebar to that is is peacemaker gonna get in like is james gunn gonna cancel his own show
1: no that was a huge hit for them that's coming yeah. back
3: and like yeah but at the same time they axed Batgirl and all these other things because they're not fitting in with whatever their plans are but peacemaker somehow is going to make it out but as someone who loves comics and like enjoys the stuff i feel tangibly in talking to other people who are not comic book people that there is a lot of this fatigue there's a lot of like superhero comic book fatigue in like general media like in the consumption
1: i mean i'm feeling thing. it at this point and i'm like the target audience for the this. Yeah.
3: there's so many things and you're just like oh god I do know, do I have to watch, like, mm-hmm. or, you know, take part in and keep separate from the actual comic book universe or which, which comic book universe, uh, versus the visual media cartoon version,
2: mm-hmm.
3: actual mm-hmm. live action stuff. You know, it's just, it, it's a lot. That, that's the one thing that's sort of been kicking around for me.
0: I get that. Yeah, I totally get that. Because every time Marvel comes out with one of their new, like, you know, I'm always like, how far back do I have to go rewatch things? Yeah, (laughs) How far back, like, you know, for like Endgame and all of that, it was like, well, shit, now I feel like I have to go back and watch every single flippin' movie that they've done so I know all the characters, the backstories. And I have heard talk about how exhausting it is to have to keep up with everything and have to go see all of those things just to understand the one piece of media you want to go watch.
1: Right. Yeah. And I mean, case in point, we've talked about this before. I ended up watching What If with my stepson. And so we started mm-hmm. asking all these questions about the multiverse and, and why that was a thing at Marvel. And I was like, oh, okay, well, let's go watch Loki. And admittedly, mm-hmm. I loved both of those. And it was great sitting there and watching it with him. And then we started doing like, because we were talking about all this. So I was able to sit there and then we brought in the science of it and talking about, you know, multiverse theory and quantum mechanics and all that, which my stepson is so smart and is going to outpace all of us. It's gross. (laughs) But like, you know, that said, he would then ask questions tied to other characters and I had to sit there and explain it to him. And I just remember sitting there and feeling tired afterwards from explaining who all these different characters were and what they did and like, you know, who old Loki was or kid Loki and like how there were comics about them. And I can only imagine how tired he felt having had to listen to all that.
3: Yeah. yeah I mean, explaining some of that, like the comic book backstory of to things to my wife. I was like, she's like, well, does this have any basis? And I started doing the same thing and Loki
1: explained it all And she's like,
3: okay. Uh, yeah.
1: Sarah does not care anymore. She's just like, whatever.
3: <laughs> it's less of an Easter egg and it becomes more of a burden.
0: Yeah. Right. To right. the Storytelling. And, some of those Easter eggs are really cool. Like I, I knew they were talking about Namor because of you know something that they had put in the very end teaser of one of the the little cutscenes at the end of one of the other movies, and I was like, "Oh, the ocean, motherfucking Namor is getting in here." But you know, and those can be fun, and those can be kind of a nice little nugget for moving forward. But I think you're right. Within the show, it's like you have to like kind of repiece all of these things and. I know one of the complaints has been like, do I need to be a comic book expert to watch these Marvel movies now? Yeah. So,
2: yeah. It gets tiring. (laughs) It is. I'm old. I just can't deal with it
3: anymore.
1: Yeah. And actually, that was kind of a joy of Peacemaker was that you very much did not need to be a comic book fan to know what was going on. I still think
3: it's the best opening to a to some tv shows i mean like i don't know if you guys caught this did i tell you about this it's space invaders the dance is space oh no invaders. i didn't know that A video game. i
1: know that that uh oh. the choreographer who did it is married to alan tudyk and so alan tudyk because they were doing it all during lockdown helped her put it together and then he was helping teach all the actors the dance hmm. like when they were training for it
3: you go back and watch it they're actually making the shapes of the figures in and how That's they come so into funny. the screen is it Space Invaders which is easy, what is it what is the storyline it's Space yeah. Invaders so cool yeah that that was like when i figured that out i was like oh my god amazing was brilliant
1: yeah all right jessica
0: so we went to lumicon today you know like we talked about at the beginning of the show and fun fact the, this was my first convention at all that I've mm-hmm. been to before. So this was really fun. We had a bunch of people that we knew there. Like I knew a bunch of the artists that were there, like Tom Balan was there and our local comic book shop Outer Plains was there and Goblin Bros was there. So we got to see Socks and you know, Kel- Kelly Galton, who's been on our show before. So it it just was a ton of fun. And I got to meet up with Mike and Sarah. So I'm, I'm excited to do more of these in the future. And I had such a good time talking to people about our show and about their kind of things that they were working on, their projects, and I'm, I'm just really excited to get more involved with the community now that more things are kind of starting to happen again. You know, we were still masked, and we were being safe still, but it's, it's so nice to be able to go out and interact with people, although now I'm going to have to take a nap after the social interactions.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> the battery gets low. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Play with my fidget dragon and just call it a day.
1: <laughs> yeah. You and Sarah were both rocking those things. It was great.
0: Yeah, bought fidget dragons from Goblin Brothers. So cute.
1: <laughs> also like they the Friends of the Sonoma County Library had a amazing kind of set of dollar bins that I got a bunch of stuff from. Yeah, me too. And then talking with them, I may end up becoming their comic book guy to help them organize stuff for sales like this. So, <laughs> I'm fine with that. I'm very excited. <laughs> That's so fun yeah
0: so what about you, Mike?
1: Yeah, mine is related to Saxon violence, which is that i I have been talking about Rugmuncher to anyone that I can because I'm just like, I can't believe this was a thing. I didn't catch it Good when Lord. I was twelve when this came out, but I keep on thinking about the problematic representation of minorities in comic books during this era, mainly because there was a character named Rugmuncher, and she's the only you know, kind of like overtly queer coded character who shows up in the series and she's very mm. much of that trope where the creators would other queer people. And it wasn't really uncommon during that era either because the AIDS epidemic was rampant and, uh, you know, it seemed to give people carte blanche to to make queer people villains in media. There was also a cartoon on Cartoon Network in the 90s called Cow and Chicken, where there are a group of very obviously lesbian motorcyclists called the Buffalo Gals show up and, And it's revealed their whole shtick as they randomly break into people's homes and, quote, chew on carpets. It's not
0: great. Good Lord.
1: And I feel like this was the last decade in which media was really allowed to blatantly other and vilify people who were different before the vibe started to gradually shift. And it's it's not perfect now. Like, we still have problems. Um, We still have issues of, like... Art was sneaking in anti-Semitic messaging and things like that into Marvel comics. That happened very recently, and it was really bad. Yeah, Marvel's editor-in-chief had a whole scandal where it turns out he faked being a Japanese person for a long time Mm. while he was an editor there so that he could write comics, and it's not great. But for the most part, it feels like it has gotten better, and it's just something that has been sitting in my head for the past couple of days because it's so shocking to come across now as you know like things have shifted enough that it that it's now shocking
3: yeah i mean i will say as someone i'm older than you guys and having borne witness to media over four decades yeah it's definitely like i think that when you started to get around the turn of the millennium there was definitely shifting happening one thing i went i got to raise a hand for my favorite character in the entire sax and violins thing is Leo, who I think is the other queer character. Aww. I think Rudd Oh, yeah. Leo.
1: Who only gets like three panels.
3: He, no, no, no. Because there's an initial thing where, where Ernie mistakes Leo for, because I, I don't know what Leo, like Leo's identification. Is. Yeah. Leo's trans or gay or queer. Or where just was, what dressed up in on?
1: women's lingerie for, for Marty right? who knows?
3: Who knows? But Leo, well, Leo's obviously into Ernie. um, And uh, but Leo sacrifices his pearls or (laughs) their their pearls to save Saxon violence from Moloch and Rug Muncher. Rug still. Yes, but totally just for that alone is the like in a a comic series full of horrible moments.
2: Like when
1: I
3: read that, I was
2: like,
1: yeah, no. Yeah. I I thought about that that too. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. Well, we will be back in two weeks with another deep dive where we are going to actually be interviewing writer Fabian Nesieza. We are very excited about that to talk about Marvel's new universe comics. Next week, we will be back with another Dollar Bin Discovery. And until then, we will see you in the stacks.
0: Thanks for listening to Ten Cent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website.
1: This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at LookMomDraws.com.
0: If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, for now. The official podcast account is TencentTakes. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica spelled with a K, but she never checks it. And Mike is Van Sal, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Mastodon, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes.
3: You can listen to the Nerdy Photographer podcast on any podcast platform. Just search for the Nerdy Photographer. You can find the Nerdy Photographer website, which includes more photography-related information at nerdyphotographer.com, and you can find me on and the socials at the Nerdy Photo.
1: That's at the Nerdy Photo on every social. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen.
0: Stay safe out there.
1: And support your local comic shop. Boom! Whitch.